Well, the actual biblical formula for strength and peace in the soul is an applied uh, experience, applied uh, encounter with the God whose voice shakes creation like a violent storm, shakes the mountains, shakes the wilderness, whose glory fills the heavens and the earth. Only the awesome glory, only the awesome power and strength of a storm like God, according to this psalm, can bring peace and strength and praise to storm-ravaged souls. And perhaps no one knows this formula more than our boy Jonah, but this morning it's King David, uh, King of Israel, who presents to us a picture of God as being like a powerful, great storm. Storms are powerful forces. If you've ever been uh, exposed to a decent one, you, you don't forget the experience too quickly. When I was a little bit younger, an invincible teenager, uh, my mate and I were hunting uh, for wild goats on the backside of uh, Mount Big Ben, on the sort of the Kagania Detering side. I know you all know where that is. Um, now, compared to the mountains of Lebanon that this psalm uh, talks about, they reach sort of 10,000 feet above sea level and the, the range stretches about 170 kilometres along. Big Ben was more like a hill. But it's a decent hill. It gets snow on it in the winter in its, in its peaks, which are more like rounded mounds. Um, they sort of rise up to about 3,800 feet above sea level. And it's, and it's one of the, the, the mountainous hills in the Great Dividing Range. We'd been given a tip that there were feral goats had moved in on our mountain and, were, and, were, and being the kind of environmentally conscious uh, souls that we were, committed to habitat preservation, uh, we were coming to the rescue, if you like, making sure that these goats were uh, removed before they could do too much damage to our beautiful mountain. What we weren't so conscious of, what so, weren't so good of, was weather awareness. And we found ourselves caught in one of the violent and sudden shifts of weather that takes place up in extreme mountainous environments like Big Ben. And we, uh, we felt and heard we we heard this storm before we we felt its presence the the sound of this sort of approaching roar of, of wild wind and, and demolished foliage foliage just kind of wreaking havoc through the place and then hit with just driving rain and debris and literally sort of you know young stringy bark trees just being twisted apart like toothpicks scary stuff even for an invincible teenager I got out of there, I made it out alive, so it's all good. But even if you haven't been exposed to a storm like that, we've all seen pictures of places like Darwin after Cyclone Tracy ripped through. That was a Category 4 storm that had winds up to 217 kilometres an hour uh, that all the instruments were recording before they themselves succumbed to the storm itself. So they don't know the full force of Cyclone Tracy or perhaps more recently Cyclone uh, Yassi. Uh, it was a Category 5 storm, one of only two to hit Australia up in far north Queensland, and um, it hit with the force of an atomic bomb. In Psalm 29, David describes the glory and the power and the strength of God via the images and the sounds of a raging storm. Charles Spurgeon observes that this psalm 
is meant to express the glory of God as heard in the pealing of thunder and seen in the gathering tornado. Its verses march to the tune of thunderbolts. God is everywhere uh, conspicuous. This is God making himself known, his power and his strength. And all the earth is hushed by the majesty of his presence. And Spurgeon suggests that this psalm is best read beneath the black wing of the tempest. So he's like, next time you see a mad storm coming your way and you're freaking out, go and read Psalm 29. The glory of God, his majesty, his power are given tangible analogies via the furious winds and the driving rains, the flashing lightning and the rumbling and the peals of thunder. The first question I had on this psalm was, I'm not sure that that's a picture that, that brings immediate uh, comfort, immediate peace. And Ken Hughes asks, why would David compare the voice of God to a violent storm? It seems more disturbing than, than peace providing. But as Ken Hughes goes on to point out, the God that we serve, the God that we give our lives to, is not a tame God. It's not a God that you put on a leash and you, you walk around. He's not a, a puny God that we get to tame and control. He is a God whose voice shakes creation. One of my favorite scenes from the C.S. Lewis book, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is when Susan and Lucy are talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan. You'll understand when you see him, says Mr. Beaver. But shall we see him, asked Susan? Why, daughter of Eve, that is why I brought you here. I am to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. Not sure why I have to have that voice, but it's Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. There is nothing safe about God. That's what C.S. Lewis is, is getting a picture. But he is good. And that's the whole testimony of Scripture, isn't it? That God is terrifying. And then at the same time, good. Not good in comparison to your shady neighbor or good in comparison to Mother Teresa. God is not subjectively good. God is perfectly good, powerfully good. And we have sanitized God a lot to make him a God that we can manage, a God who, who fits in with our small designs and our modern sensitivities. But if you're being real, who needs a God like that? How can a God like that give you strength and peace when you have Category 4, Category 5 storms 
raging in your life? How can a God of our small imaginations and limitations possibly deal with the reality of our lives? No, you want a God whose voice strips the proud mountains of their glory and shakes the wastelands in their, in their vastness. Psalm 19 is a psalm about God. 18 times in all but one of the 11 verses, David uses the personal name that God gave to himself, the name Yahweh, translated Lord with capitals. This psalm celebrates the God who is king, the God who is omnipotent, the God who is Lord above the storm. It serves to remind Israel and you and I where our strength, peace and praise should be. I'm missing a slide. That's okay. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. David begins the psalm with a call to worship. The word ascribe appears uh, three times in rapid succession. And it's written as an imperative. This is an imperative that Yahweh, and again, the, the name that God had given to himself, a name through which God, via his acts of redemption, his faithful covenantal loyalty, had made himself known as the one true sovereign king over all of creation, over all of the powers and principalities, seen and unseen. It is imperative that Yahweh, this God, be ascribed worship in accordance with with that glory, that strength, and that name. Indeed, it is the glory of God, his steadfast loyalty and his power that becomes the limitless watermark of his saving and redeeming love and the, the confidence and the foundation of any strength and peace of our soul. So it sort of seems almost redundant that a call to worship would be needed. But like you and I, Israel were all too often found worshipping and organising their lives around lesser gods. Gods like Baal, a god who was thought to be lord over the storm, ascribing more worth and value to the things of creation than the creator, seeking strength and peace for life in created things that have no ultimate power to deliver the desired security and confidence and peace and strength for life that we look for. Well, David issues this, his call of worship to heavenly beings, sometimes translated mighty ones. And it could be that David has in mind the divine heavenly council, the heavenly beings that surround the throne of God, who sang at the dawn of creation. And if that's the case, he is imploring them to do what they are created to do, to ascribe glory and majesty and all of this to God and to lead God's earthly creatures in worship. And as they do, these heavenly beings, they honor God as they should and they instruct uh, God's people on how to appropriately worship God. It also could be, they're divided about this, given David's mimicking of Canaanite language and forms as he writes this psalm, that he's putting these lesser deities of human construction uh, like Baal and these things in their place in order to emphasize their weakness in contrast to Yahweh's strength and glory. Before Yahweh, these so-called forces have no choice but to ascribe glory to the one true sovereign God. This acknowledgement of Yahweh's uh, glory and strength 
by these deities, whether they're the heavenly council or these um, gods, these constructs of idolatrous human hearts, instructs and sets the standard for God's people who, like their divine counterparts, uh, respond with their own awe-filled cry of glory. Either way, David lets us know that all of creation has a responsibility to worship in splendor and holiness. It's a bit ambivalent whether that splendor and holiness is ours or whether it's God. But either way, you are to come and approach God appropriately with adoration and an undivided heart, not a heart that's chasing off after other things, but a heart that sees God as sovereign. All of creation will take an appropriate approach to God. All of creation will present themselves in a manner fit for the worship of the great king. The so-called mighty ones, heavenly beings, will strip themselves of this stolen or misappropriated glory and with humility bow to honour the true splendour and the true holiness of God. David's call to ascribe appropriate worship sets the stage now for God to kind of reveal his majesty and his greatness. And the image or the um, theophany that David calls upon to describe the overwhelming glory and strength of God is a storm through which God speaks of his glory, his majesty, and his power. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. David writes these verses from verse 3 to 9 like a meteorologist describing the path of a great storm. The voice of the Lord gathers its form over the Mediterranean Sea and makes land with uh, devastating power. The physical picture of this storm forming over the Mediterranean is this picture of the voice of God thundering over the waters, depicting his authority and his power over the very places where you know Canaanite gods originated from. Yahweh's glory is set over and above them. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth. Flames of fire. The storm makes landfall on the coast of Lebanon. Uh, beyond the far north of Israel, a region that's renowned for its spectacular and sought-after cedar trees that cover the other natural wonder of Lebanon up in the north, its mountainous ranges. Even today, if you go and look at the flag of Lebanon, you will see an outline of the cedar tree on it. These trees supplied the regions throughout the Mediterranean from Egypt in the south up to the Mesopotamia in the north with the building materials. They're the timbers from which Solomon built the temple. <clears throat> the cedars and their mountainous habitat were also considered to be the home of the gods, guarded by great and powerful kind of spiritual creatures. The power, the strength, and the glory of Yahweh over these natural and spiritual objects is depicted and displayed in a storm's power to break the strong and lofty cedars like twigs. His voice strips the trees of their strength and shakes the foundations of the mountain, causing the whole range just to, to shake and tremble, to skip like a calf. Their grandeur, their so-called strength and grandeur before God is little more than a frightened newborn calf. 
The dark and foreboding places of this terrain are illuminated with bolts of lightning. None of their secrets or their shadows are concealed from the Lord, whose voice, whose presence flashes forth like flames of fire. The picture that David paints is is that of is that is that God is not in nature. God is not subject to nature. He is over nature. These majestic objects and resources are not strongholds and fortresses of rival deities that challenge God's ability to be the peace and the strength of his people. There is nothing in nature nor anything that we would build with its resources that is worthy of the glory due to God. We are to enjoy nature. We are to be creative with its resources, but we are not to misplace our worship or give it glory that it doesn't own. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and it strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The storm makes its way across the wilderness of Kadesh, which David uses as a bit of a general term for for the wilderness. Even in its vast vegetated spaces of wilderness of, of Lebanon and Syria, the voice, the power and the presence of the Lord cannot be hidden from or ignored. Even in these remote areas, God is displayed as Lord over all that takes place. His power is not diminished or diluted by the fact that it's, it's spread out over all of these vast spaces. His voice still lays bare the forest. God is not a localized deity. God is not restricted by geography. Verse 9b is just an interesting little thing uh, that translators, it probably should be best, best translated, the voice of the Lord makes the oaks to shake rather than the... the, the um, the deer to give birth but there's a whole conversation around that but the whole picture is that the voice of the Lord in these vast spaces still retains its power David now turns his attention from the displays of God's glory majesty and power in the storm to the hearts of his people in his temple the place where God has veiled all of the power to be all of his power to be present with his people in a way that brings peace and strength. His people should cry glory. When they see how this God of unchanged power, unchained power now bridles himself so we can be in his presence, our response to that should be to ascribe glory to this God. This is no tame or puny God who allows us to approach him. The praise of God that was initiated in the heavens by the heavenly beings is now joined by the hearts of the earthly beings as they realize that all of this glory, all of this power and all of this strength is unleashed on them for their well-being and salvation. This is their God. His goodness is exercised towards them with unrivaled power. The same power that strips the earth that shakes its foundations is the same power that comes in now and preserves and sustains his people God works in the environment of our lives to push back the darkness and reveal his power the same power that strips the cedar that shakes the mountains comforts and strengthens the hearts of his people and it gives to the people this sense of tranquil awe 
Who else can deal with the storms of our lives than the one who sits above the storms of creation? Who else can restore peace to the soul than the one who controls the forces of nature? Through the, though the storms rage and the, and the mountains quake, though it looks like the whole entire world is falling apart, Yahweh, God, is king and sovereign. David reminds his gathered worshippers that even in the most destructive and powerful uh, climactic event, the great flood, it was just an expression of God's power over all the earth and its reach was limited by God. It is God who sits above the earth. And when the chaotic forces appear to threaten and undo creation and human existence, it is the power of God that holds the universe together. He is the eternal king. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Ascribe him glory. Give God the wilderness of your hearts. Give God the storms of your lives. In holiness and splendor, approach him and find Peace for your soul. The one who comes to God with their heart transformed by his glory, his power and his might is the one who finds peace and strength there. The one whose splendor and holiness is based in the presence of God's power in their lives finds the strength and peace for category four, category five storms of our life. You know, David had to draw on powerful displays, things like tropical cyclones, breaking on land to capture the untamed majesty and power of God. When the writer of the Gospels begin to write their Gospels, John begins his Gospel by telling us that in the person of Jesus, humanity has seen the glory of God. Humanity has seen the power and the majesty of God dwelling amongst us in 1 John 14 when God ultimately decided to disclose his glory and his majesty and power he didn't come in a storm he didn't come in a tempest he came as a person but Jesus too is no tame God someone who we can keep as a little house pet and a genie that you summon up when you're in a bit of a spot He too exists and exercises unchallenged power over the chaos of life that sin has unleashed. Healing the sick, restoring the distressed, spiritual forces cower in his presence and all conditions and environments that rob us of our peace and strength, including death itself, surrendered to his voice. There is a story, historic story, recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels that tell the story of, of, of how Jesus was traveling across the Sea of Galilee in a boat with his disciples when a violent storm just whipped up and the disciples were, Jesus just calmly sleeping and, and they are fearing that they are going to die. And they wake Jesus and they're like, you know, don't you care that we're going to drown? And Jesus just simply stands up and he says to this storm, quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And rather than start cheering and jumping up and down, the the disciples were terrified. Their lives have just been saved, but they're terrified. God, when he shows up, is terrifying. They recognize that this is no ordinary man in their boat, that in him is the glory and the power and, and the presence of God. Because who else's voice 
masters the storm, calms the sea than the voice of God. In Jesus, God has made his glory, power and strength known to us, not in a storm, not in a tempest, but in a saviour. In the person of Jesus, the voice of God takes on flesh and enters into our lives, enters into their storms to bring strength and peace. Ultimately on a cross, Jesus faces the ultimate storm, the wrath of God towards sin, when he is stripped bare so that we are now clothed in splendor and holiness. He is shaken so that we can gather confidence and strength. He is torn apart so that we can receive peace and be made whole. God's ultimate provision of peace and strength for the storms of our souls is found in Jesus. This is a psalm that, that, that speaks of the grandness and the glory of God, but it points us to the, to the ultimate storm comer. And the question is, has, has, has that taken root in your life? When storms roll in, when things look out of control, where do you find peace and security? For, for the early Israelites, they had to look at the storm and imagine the grandness and the greatness of God for us. We have a personal relationship with Jesus. So Spurgeon says, read this psalm when a storm rolls in. And Jesus would say, hold my hand as a storm rolls in. <clears throat> Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for these psalms. They refresh our souls. They, <clears throat> they warm our hearts with affection for you. But ultimately they point towards one who brings the provision that they envisage. This morning as we think about the year ahead and all that lies ahead. And for some of us storms, dark clouds on the horizons. But here we are. We have a God who is Lord over the storms. And a saviour who can bring peace and strength to our souls. Who has conquered all of the things that afflict us. Would we push into that? Would we know that more and more in our lives? And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.